I want to just begin tonight's session with a chant on the recollection of the Buddha, the standard recollection. Araham sama sambuddho vija charana sampano sukato lokavidu anutaro purisadama sarati Sata Deva Manutsanam Dudo Bhagavati. There's another chant I'd like to begin tonight with, which is the um, not just focused on the Buddha, but focused on the three refuges or the triple gem, what's called Tisarana in Pali. T meaning three and sadhana referring to the refuge. And this refuge is probably also um, familiar to some of you. Um, it basically says, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dhamma, I take refuge in the Sangha. And it goes, Buddham sadhanam gachami, Dhammam sadhanam gachami. Now, this is probably the most common chant in the Theravada tradition. And if, you've, if it's the only chant you ever learn, you'll actually use it a fair amount. You basically use it any time you walked into a traditional Buddhist monastery. Because it is... Um, Pervasive. It begins every ritual. It begins every retreat. It begins. Uh, it begins everything. I'd like to look a little bit at some of these words because sadhana means refuge, protection, shelter, but also house, and it's similar to the term for hall, like a meditation hall, sala, and gamana or gachati or gachami is a movement toward, it means going. I am intent upon going, or I shall go, referring to being in motion or to move, and can also mean I trust myself to. So we have the Buddha Dhamma Sangha as the three items with saranam, referring to this refuge, protection, shelter, house or and gachami, which is the going to. So the translation quite naturally and clearly is I go to the Buddha for refuge. I go to the Dhamma for refuge. Or I take refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. It can be used to refer this um, Gachami can be used to refer to just about any kind of movement or behavior or position. And it can also be used not just for these kinds of um, spiritual undertakings, but also being intent upon standing or being intent upon going to the store or sh I, sh I shall sit, I shall go into the sitting posture. It, it's the opposite of running, staying, and coming. Agachati. Gachati can also be used as a strong form like to, of to be. I go to be in the same state of being, um, or such as like a heaven. I go to heaven. I go to be in heaven. 
or I go to be where there is no, no suffering can reach. So it can refer to a going into a state or a going um, to awakening. Taking refuge implies in some way or other a movement toward, and in this sense it is an active commitment. It's not a passive surrender. It's an active movement and commitment of the heart. So the Buddhist tradition identifies three refuges, what are called the three gems or the three jewels. The Buddha, or full awakening. The Dhamma, which is the way, is the, which directs the way to the full awakening. And the Sangha, which is the gathering of people concerned with awakening. And over the years, a ceremony has developed in which these jewels are formally accepted and socially cherished. And in formal Buddhist situations, such as funerals, uh, gatherings, holidays, ordinations, uh, blessings, just about any kind of ceremony that would, involve, that would, that would occur in the Buddhist tradition, they often precede it so that somebody undertaking some kind of, of blessing or requesting a blessing or um, any, anything really, but basically everything, even at the beginning of retreats or practice periods, one would take refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. In Thailand, at the monasteries, before receiving the teachings, before hearing a Dhamma talk, we would always take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. We would take, the refuges were part of the morning and evening chants, and they would precede each discourse. The refuges are considered by some Buddhists to be a prerequisite to receiving any teaching on liberation. And for many Buddhists, they consider it the mark of being a Buddhist. It certainly is a conscious expression of a movement toward or a commitment toward that path of awakening. And so it raises the natural question, what makes somebody a Buddhist or not a Buddhist? Do you consider yourself to be a Buddhist? If yes, why? And if no, why not? Well, I think this question of being a Buddhist or not being a Buddhist is an interesting one for us to pose because and to consider because most of us were not raised in a Buddhist culture or a Buddhist family. And so it's not something that we grow up with as a social identity. It's something that we actually consider. And so we can consider what would that mean? What does that mean? Interestingly, I think Buddhism is a little different than the majority of religions because it doesn't involve the deity. You know, we don't have to believe in some form of deity or dogma in order to practice Buddhism. And we also don't have to undertake any particular rituals, purifications, or practices that um, would mark one, in a way, as being a uh, Buddhist. 
across cultures. So every culture has approached this, um, every culture that Buddhism has entered has worked with this question of being a Buddhist a bit differently. And in the States, we'll be exploring it as, as the Buddhist generations continue. There will be more and more children growing up in families with parents who, are, who practice Buddhism. And it'll be interesting to see what that, um, how that develops. The Buddha said that one who has gone forth, gone, gone, to the, gone for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, and sees with right understanding the Four Noble Truths. This combination of going to refuge for to refuge for the Buddha to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and seeing with right understanding the Four Noble Truths is an interesting dimension to refuge because it makes it so clear that refuge is not about identification with a social group. It's not about being born into a group or a class or a caste or uh, some kind of chosen or um, socially determined network. It's not about clinging to what a good Buddhist is. It is instead a very conscious undertaking of a path that sees and practices the Four Noble Truths. And these Four Noble Truths are suffering and the end of suffering, understanding the causes that give rise to suffering, and knowing the way to the ending of suffering. It's a refuge of the heart, and it is a way of discovering something that is a true and trustworthy protection, a way of committing our lives to a path of compassion and wisdom that provides a shelter in a world of insecurity and suffering. The practice of refuge is to discover and connect with a reliable refuge. Perhaps it's not the refuge of shopping or television or a chocolate bar or whatever our, whatever we often go to to feel good. This is a different kind of refuge. It's a more trustworthy refuge. And this practice of finding a reliable refuge, I think of it as going, but not going away. It's going home. It's going home after having wandered for a very long time. I just returned from five days in Seattle where I was teaching over the weekend. And it's always nice to go home. Mm -hmm. yeah, when the plane comes into the, to the airport and it looks so familiar there, it's just like, oh, I'm going home. <laughs> and it's a good feeling. And I think of that as being a very mundane way of thinking of this going home, this movement toward, not moving out somehow, but going home to something that feels like a shelter, a place where we can rest, where we, um, where, um, where we can find, where we feel trust. This term of the refuge, as I spoke about, is described as sometimes as a house 
a protection, a shelter, a safety, or a harbor. It's not the kind of divisiveness that we might find in institutional authority, and refuge does not involve any conformity to religious fanaticism or belonging to some kind of cultural clique. Um, becoming a Buddhist is not joining an institution. And it's a little odd in that way, because often we think when there's an ist at the end of something, ooh, this means some kind of identification with a, um, an, an order or a fellowship that uh, gets involved in politics and all that sort of um, unreliable formations. Institutional sex cannot by their very dependency on ideology and social formations, be a trustworthy or reliable refuge. So we ask ourselves, what is a reliable refuge? What can we commit ourselves to move toward? What is our direction? And where do we want to be going? When we say, I take refuge in the Buddha, what does this mean to us? to take refuge in the Buddha. I consider it an invitation. Each time I think I take refuge in the Buddha, it is taking refuge, it's inviting myself to open to the possibility of awakening. It's an invitation to connect with this possibility of liberation. Bodhi means awake. Buddha refers to one who is awakened, the awakened one. Buddha is not the name of a man who lived 2,600 years ago. It, ref it refers, it's more like a, a title or it refers to a kind of function, kind of like the term president or honored teacher. is not the name of the person, but we know who it refers to in the context that it's used. The Buddha inspires the possibility of enlightenment, of awakening, but how do you define awakening? This, these terms, awakening, enlightenment, they bring very different things to mind to different people. And I'm curious, are these words, words that you are comfortable using? Are they words that bring something to mind for you, something either confusing or inspiring? What does it mean to you, these terms, awakening or enlightenment? Please. Enlightenment is one who means perfect understanding. Perfect understanding. Okay. Yes. Okay. Other thoughts? Awakening, enlightenment. Perfect understanding. Perfect understanding. How would you add? I know. Yeah. I think there's a thing called um, Maya, the veil of illusion. Ah, okay. And to me, it's the removal of that veil of illusion. The removal seeing, of the veil of illusion. Yeah, seeing what's really is so. Yes. 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 And that relates a lot to the awakening part, is, mm -hmm. is removing the, the, the dullness of the sleep. I think in little ways, too, is that comfortable, a delayed feeling of, oh, I get it, this feels right. It's an experience. Okay, so an experiential sense of knowledge, of getting it, and of the trust of some of the correctness, the rightness of something. Yes. 
Okay, so it's more than thinking, it's more than something that happens in the mind, but if there's an awakened life or there's an enlightened activity of some kind, something that is transmitted from a mental perspective right into our actions. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay, so, so enlightenment and awakening refer also to the ending of suffering, stri- that pointless striving, pointless running around, pointless wandering. Yes. What else does it end? Anything else? The hindrances, the obstructions, the sense desire, sense of self. What else does it end? Because you can see this in positive terms, you could also see it in the, the cessation of or the ending. Mm-hmm. Craving, yeah. classically craving, ignorance, delusion, the, um, the three poisons of greed, hate, and delusion, uh, and suffering. You can combine them all as the ending of suffering. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes we think of awakening as being a kind of experience and an experience maybe of oneness or of selflessness or of emptiness or of being happy and calm forever and ever and ever. <laughs> and sometimes we think of it as being the cessation of greed, hate, and delusion, which is a classic definition of what awakening is. And I think it's really helpful to understand awakening not just as some kind of event that happens and then is left in the past like a memory. Or somebody gets sort of the stamp or the seal of approval. Ah, you've had your awakening experience. Oh no. In the Buddhist tradition, enlightenment is defined as the ending of greed, hate, and delusion. And there are many other descriptions of it, but at its basic definition, it is the ending of these poisons that distort our mind. Is this something that you aspire for? When I think about enlightenment and awakening in terms of a feeling of oneness and this cool experience, it doesn't really give rise to very much enthusiasm within me. But when I think about ending greed and hatred, I feel tremendous motivation. I can really get around that. And it makes me want to persist in my practice. It makes me want to be in it for the long haul. You know, not expect some kind of a cool, neat experience and then done, but but really see it as an ongoing cultivation that I'm willing to commit to. And so it's, I think it's important to consider how we understand these terms so that we understand them in a way that may inspire our persistence and our practice. When we reflect on the Buddha, it's important to know that the Buddha was a human being, just like us. He is not a god. 
He was a man of great accomplishment. And he was a man who discovered the path to ending greed, hate, and delusion. He discovered the path to the realization of ultimate awakening. And because he discovered this path, he is a trustworthy guide to that path. And so taking refuge in the Buddha is forming the willingness to set forth under the guidance of this teacher, to be willing to simply apply the instructions that he taught, to follow the training that he developed, to see for ourselves then where it leads and what it does. Taking refuge in the Buddha is not surrendering ourselves to a deity. It really is understanding that he accomplished something and we are willing to learn from him. It's more like an apprenticeship. The practice of Buddha Nusati, the mindfulness of the Buddha, where we take the Buddha as our contemplation, as our recollection, which was the first chance that we started the evening with, is to reflect upon the qualities of the Buddha and reflecting on those qualities inspires us to develop those same qualities within ourselves. Taking refuge in the Buddha does not separate him out upon a pedestal where we can't reach, but it, it's, the way, it's the way of contemplating those qualities so that we embody them, so that we cultivate them, and so that we enhance them within ourselves. Buddha Nusanti matures, the practice of mindfulness of the Buddha matures, as our doubt about the potential for awakening fades, and we cultivate and mature and develop those wholesome qualities that are attributed to an awakened being. There needs to be some degree of faith in this possibility of awakening just to begin the path. If you didn't think that you could cultivate wholesome states, you would not have come here tonight. If you didn't think that it was possible to improve yourself and to develop something good, you really would not have gotten out of the house. There is already a sense of possibility that has brought you here. And it's this is the possibility that begins the contemplation of the Buddha. Possibility is a very powerful space to hold in the heart because it keeps us open to discovery. This faith that the light enlightenment is possible inspires our practice. Traditionally, this is interpreted as faith that the historical Buddha really was enlightened. And to believe that full awakening really is possible. But this refuge in the Buddha simply means refuge in enlightenment. We don't actually have to know a great very many particular details about the, the man who lived 2,600 years ago named Siddhartha Gautama of the Sakyan clan in northern India. The tradition does say that that Siddhartha Gautama was not the first Buddha. He was the 25th Buddha. 
out of eons of world expansion and world contraction. Now, I don't know if a world expansion and a world contraction is exactly like a Big Bang and then the universe all collapsing back together. It, it, I don't know that there's that kind of scientific comparison, but the, the, the ancient Buddhist philosophies are that the world expanded out and then it contracts back. And in that existence of an expansion and a contraction, there are periods of time where the teachings of liberation are not available. And then there is the arising of a Buddha who teaches, who discovers the way. And then there is a duration where those teachings are available and many, many, many beings are able to practice the way. And then the teachings eventually fade out again. And eventually in time the world contracts and then it expands. And this process has been going on on expansion and contraction and expansion and contraction for a very long time. And the tradition lists the names of 25 previous Buddhas. And I find it very curious that they're all from two, one of two, two castes. <laughs> and they all have Indian names. So there is no doubt a certain amount of cultural. Um, uh, I just take a little, take, you can take a little bit of, a, of it with a grain of salt, is what I'm saying. And we don't have to know the deep. The, the details or believe all of the different details. But I think it is interesting to have a broad sense of time, a sense that there are times and places where the teachings don't exist, and it's a remarkable person who discovers that path and is able to teach it. The ministry lasts for a period of time, and then it fades away. It's forgotten. And then there's another period of time before another remarkable individual develops the mind to the point that he, well, they've all been he's, but let's say he or she, <laughs> can discover the path. Those 25 at least were all he's. Okay. The basic idea is, though, because it has been discovered by a human being, there's no reason why we can't practice this path. It's not actually an arrogant statement to compare oneself to the Buddha. The Buddha himself used his story to inspire others to practice themselves because he recognized that it was his life that demonstrated that freedom was possible. And so recollecting his virtues Recognizing his accomplishments inspires the effort for others to follow in this way. If you ever find yourself harboring a kind of pessimism or negative self-talk that drains your resources or creates chronic stress in your life, or that inertia of, I can't do this, I'll never, I'll never get ahead, that powerless feeling, the way that we sometimes put internal roadblocks to, to our development, then the refuge in the Buddha is a way of breaking through those roadblocks and just opening us to our potential. In a book called How Can I Help, Ram Dass and Paul Gorman used a beautiful image. They said the fear of awakening or not believing that letting go is possible is like the caterpillar looking up at the butterfly and saying, you'll never get me up in one of those things. <laughs> 
We have to give ourselves the chance to transform. And refuge, taking refuge, is a basic conviction that it is not only possible to end suffering, it is also possible for us. We just have to bother to try. With some faith in this possibility, we start out on the path. We let go of bad habits and we try to cultivate better ones. We cultivate more skillful ways of living, of helping others, and of developing resources within our own mind of mindfulness, of concentration, of kindness and compassion. We do something to develop ourselves. As a meditation practice or an active reflection, Buddha Nusati, this mindfulness of the Buddha, is energizing, it's invigorating. When practice gets difficult, you find the mind perhaps becoming sluggish or agitated. The Buddha specifically recommended taking up what is translated as uninspiring theme. And then the list of inspiring themes include the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, our virtues, and, and various other options. And this sometimes happens. We're practicing mindfulness with breathing, and things are kind of going along sort of okay. But we go get to a period that feels really dry, and it's just, just hard to continue. Or maybe we start to feel restless and sleepy, and it's not just a little restlessness or a little sleepiness. It just keeps going on and on and on, and we're getting agitated by this to the point that we don't even want to feel our breath anymore. We don't want to sit. We need a little break from it. And the break that the Buddha recommended is to drop the mindfulness with breathing for a while and to focus instead on cultivating wholesome states through these inspiring themes. And reflection on the Buddha is one of the primary ones that are taught, and it's one of the ones that I've been using as my break from um, uh, when, I, when I feel like I need a little break in my meditation, I go to the mindfulness um, of the Buddha for the last few years, and it's very uh, delightful to have an alternative object that brings joy and happiness and delight, a kind of coolness and ease to the mind. Then once the mind is refreshed and energized, I simply return to the mindfulness with breathing. And I can maybe make the shift for just five minutes or ten minutes. I might do it for a whole sitting period. I might have that as my meditation for some days, whatever I feel is appropriate. But it's sort of this little break as a skillful way of changing the uh, kind of tensions that can sometimes build up when we're trying really hard in our meditation, easing up on them and then returning to our more um, uh, general med or our more um, the, the, our basic meditation object made basic meditation practice it's not always necessary when we have agitation and hindrances to only deal with them by being mindful of the hindrances sometimes we can recognize restlessness and agitation and just decide well I think I'm going to do something else well, if we act on the restlessness by saying, I think I'm going to do something else, which means get up from the meditation and go eat ice cream, well, chances are we're not going to be developing wholesome states. But if we just shift our meditation practice, maintain our posture, but just shift it a little bit to 10 minutes of 
of Buddha Nusati, for example, or loving kindness practice if you prefer, which is another option, then it often is just enough to shift it a little bit and then one comes back. This development of skillful breaks in our meditation helps a, a meditator develop um, alternatives and I think it helps us last for many years in our practice so that we can uh, have a kind of a wide toolkit of different practices that we can use at different times. When we take refuge in the Buddha, we are not just reciting a pledge, we are not just repeating a chant, and we are also not just engaging in another meditation technique that is in our toolkit. We're not just applying a band-aid to our minds. It has meaning only when it is expressed by cherishing awakening as a primary commitment and refuge and support for our lives. When we go home, going home to the deepest truth, the deepest potential for peace, we are taking refuge in the Buddha. When we have the refuge of enlightenment, we are not going to seek refuge in possessions, in self-aggrandizement, in the approval of others, in social positions, prestige, power, greed, pleasures, etc. Not even chocolate. Refuge in the Buddha is a fundamental reorientation of our faith away from the material obsessions and toward a commitment to qualities that will prove to be a reliable and enduring refuge for us all. Araham sama sambuddho vija charana sampano sukato lokavidu Anutaro Purisadama Sarati Sata Deva Manutsanam Budo Bhagavati Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.